Eventfire Solutions is proud to support Extended. You can find us at eventfiresolutions.co.uk. Enjoy the programme. Called the Chamber of Silence, where they went into this kind of huge sealed chamber, actually not so huge, and they were cut off from all human contact for often weeks, completely see how they coped with the isolation they might experience in space. And he is genuinely cool as a cucumber. I mean, his heartbeat is really quite low because they're measuring that too. It's yeah. quite extraordinary, really. So he had the high school. He had the right stuff, definitely. He was the right man. Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello, I'm Peter Johnson and thank you for joining us today. Today I'm joined by Stephen Walker. Stephen is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and his films have won BAFTAs, an Emmy, Royal Television Society Awards and the coveted Rose Door. Today, though, we're here to talk to Stephen about his award-winning book, Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. Stephen, welcome to Extended. Thanks very much for having me. Um, absolutely delighted. Um, as I mentioned before I hit record, I've read the book twice, and I'm still astonished at the story that you uncovered. And I've got a lot of admiration for how the two different cultures achieved the race to space in in such different manners. But before we explore the details in, in, in Beyond and that whole journey, the West, or shall I say the Americans, have been completely spooked by Sputnik. Now the race to put the first human into space was on. And that's really where the book comes in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is an incredible fact that the race to put the first human being in space comes literally down to the wire. I mean, it is a very exciting race, actually, at some very basic level. I think that there are just 23 days that separate the first Soviet in space from the first American in space. And that race is the culmination of an extraordinary technological race to do just this amazing thing, to do something which is very hard for people to think about these days because we're kind of used to the idea of people going into space. But the notion, the idea of putting a human being into space back in the 1950s was almost incredible. It was in the realm of science fiction. It really was. And so there is this extraordinary technological battle between the superpowers to get that first human being in space. And yet what makes it to me so fascinating in terms of the ideology you're talking about and the ideological battle, it is all set within a geopolitical context, which is in many ways not dissimilar to where we are right now. Because yeah. everything depends, everything depends, not just as a technological achievement, Everything depends on which one of those superpowers wins that race. Well, let's talk then a, a bit about how they em embarked upon that journey and um, my uh, slightly odd fascination with how they uh, recruited those cosmonauts um, mm. in, in what was then the Soviet Union. It's very different to those superstar test pilots that we saw um, or we see historically and are endeared with through the American system. Yeah. I mean, look, let's paint a picture. Um, it's April 1959. 
Seven men in the United States at NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C., are paraded before the world's press. These guys are the seven gladiators who are going to take America into the space age, into the human space age. One of these guys is going to be the first American in space, and the hope is the first human in space. The ideological battle that's being fought is now crucial. You have to think of them as a set of gladiators. They are very public figures. They are mobbed. They are superstars. They are rock stars, effectively, even though not one of them has gone into space and they won't for at least another two years. And the incredible thing about these guys is that everybody falls in love with them. They make a great deal of money because Life magazine, which was the big weekly magazine of the time, does a special exclusive deal with them and pays them really quite substantial amounts of money in order for them to so-called tell their stories, which are highly sanitized stories sold to the American public and to the world. And they are given private jets to fly. They are kind of real celebrities. Every one of those guys is a test pilot, as you say. They're all in their 30s. They've all got incredible experience. Some of them have been on television before. They're quite famous. People like John Glenn is already quite a well-known kind of personality. Um, They're all military test pilots. And they have become the kind of elite of the elite of the elite. This is These are the guys with the right stuff, okay? And there they are, very public. Everybody knows about them. Cut to the Soviet Union. Everything is being watched. Everything is being done in secret. And what is being watched is we can see these guys are up there. The race is on. We now secretly have to train or find first and train our own guys. And so what starts is this extraordinary search to find the Soviet gladiator team, basically, except this search is done in the most extreme secrecy. And when, and we can talk about how they did this, I think that's kind of part of your question, but when they find these people, when they finally select these people, and the search begins within weeks of that American press conference and in direct response to it, when that actually happens, when these men, and they find 20 of them, not just seven like the Americans, but 20 of them because their space ambitions are even bigger, when they find 20 of them, even then there is no parade. There is no Life magazine equivalent. There is no press conference. There is nothing. There is total and absolute secrecy. And there's a wonderful quote that I put in the book from astronaut John Glenn, who was the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962, who back then was saying, we don't even know who we're racing against. So you've got on the one side, an open public rock star group of seven test pilots, And on the other, you've got 20 silent, secret men training for the same thing. And yes, of course, we should talk about how they selected them and also who these men were, because the the, the reasons, the criteria of that selection was totally different on the Soviet side from what it was on the American side. Yeah. And... I mean, ultimately, Gagarin was selected, but he was a, a, a one of a number. H- how did he filter through to be one of those chosen few? Well, it's a good question, Peter, because what that does, it kind of rolls back. And I say, well, how did they select these guys? What was what was going on? OK, so what was happening basically was this. Just to be very clear, the American seven, as I said before, all in their 30s, very experienced pilots, military pilots, and they're all test pilots for fairly kind of obvious reasons, you might say. And we can come back to those reasons in a minute. But essentially what they were looking for were people who would not only be able to withstand whatever the hell was going to be thrown at them at this completely unknown environment of space, but also people who were very good pilots, people who would be able to control, if necessary, their machines. And a certain amount of control was built in, eventually, to the first generation of spacecraft, the Mercury spacecraft. The Soviets, totally different. They were not looking for pilots. They were looking for guinea pigs. They were looking for people who could endure whatever was going to happen up there and basically not touch 
anything. So what you get is three and a half thousand potential candidates are investigated. The files are investigated. We're looking for not very experienced 30-something test pilots. We're looking at military pilots, serving fighter pilots who are probably in their 20s, not especially experienced, good communists. This was an important part of the program as well. Good communists, uh, loyal communists with a good background as well in that area, super fit, but able to become even fitter. And on average, at least 10 years younger than the average age of the American pilots or the American astronauts, the Mercury 7. Three and a half thousand files are considered. Out of that three and a half thousand, I believe 352 men are invited to attend um, various kinds of tests in a hospital in central Moscow. They're not even told exactly what it is they're being tested for in every case. Some people are told that they might be volunteering to fly a totally new type of aircraft. Many of them think it's going to be helicopters, actually. Right. And some right. decline because they don't want to fly helicopters. They're flying fast jets, you know. Which yeah. Others are told something about rockets. And it all sounds unbelievable. I mean, this is just the very beginning of the space age. Yeah. So they get excited. They go down. And they are then subjected in batches under a secret program called Theme Number 6, whatever the hell that means. They are then subjected to weeks of the most intensive medical and psychological tests you can imagine, far more so than the Americans are. Yeah, I, I, I'm laughing, Stephen, because in the book you go into some graphic detail. Of the um, um... <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy running this program called Vladimir Yazdovsky, and this guy had been responsible for the animal in space program. They sent a lot of dogs into space, and essentially the humans were a kind of a version of the dog. And he was a kind of sadistic brute. I mean, he really was. I've spoken, I've interviewed people who knew him and they were terrified of this guy. He was a brute. He was supervising. So they would do things like, for example, they would stick these guys into baking chambers where they would be baked in their spacesuits to temperatures of about 70 degrees centigrade for <laughs> half an hour, an hour. And then when they came out of the baking chambers, they were then expected to do squats for the next 30 minutes, you know? And everything, all their kind of, you know, their physical features and their psychological responses were very carefully noted. They had vibrating beds, which basically nearly let, you know, people's teeth nearly fell out when they were vibrated so kind of badly. They did all sorts of horrible pressure tests, you know, altitude pressure tests where people would faint. They had a horrible thing we might come back to called the Chamber of Silence, where they went into this kind of huge sealed chamber, actually not so huge, and they were cut off from all human contact for often weeks, completely see how they coped with the isolation they might experience in space. So there were a lot of very, very nasty, that's the tip of the iceberg, horrible kind of test devised by Vladimir, the egregious Vladimir Yazdovsky and his various cohorts that these guys would go through. And it was horrible. And people dropped like flies. And one by one, they were narrowed and they were narrowed and they were narrowed until they got to the last 20. Now, Gagarin was one of those that you mentioned. And Yuri Gagarin was followed that path precisely. I mean, he was a fighter pilot in the Air Force. He was stationed at a frontline squadron up in the Arctic, very close to the Norwegian border, Norway being on the other, you know, you're talking about NASA in the West and on his, so he's very close. In the event of a third world war, he'd be right in the front line. Yeah. He was one of those who was interviewed. He volunteered. He managed to get through all of these tests incredibly, and he was selected. And the selections meant that in March, I believe, 1960, um, which is nearly a year after the Americans had gone in front of that incredible press conference in Washington, D.C., the first 20 men sat in a conference room in a secret location in Moscow and began their training. Yeah. And that training was very different as well from, from again, what, what we've seen through particularly the American system. Yeah. And there was this um, a focus very much on, for want of a better description, things like gymnastics yeah. in, in terms of their health uh, and where we see 
the centrifuges being used in um, in the U.S. training program, uh, yeah. we see in the uh, Soviet program a slightly more brutal style of throwing these cosmonauts around. I mean, I mean, we're talking. Yeah, everything was more brutal. Let's <laughs> 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 get clear about this. It was all pretty brutal. Okay, I mean, bottom line is is nobody knows what's going to happen exactly to human beings in space. I mean, animals, and we can, if you like, talk yeah. about that, have been sent up on both sides. But the reality is nobody actually understood quite what was going to happen to a human being. So it was actually important that the Americans also were fit. But because it's a much more laissez-faire culture, there was no official fitness program on the American side. You could take exercise or not as you wished. Some really did. People like John Glenn, who actually had to get his weight down in order to yeah. fit inside the Mercury capsule. Others were less enthusiastic, shall we say. On the Soviet side, totally different situation. A huge part of their day was taken up every day with gymnastics. And the gymnastics, and not just physical exercise, gymnastics. I've got tons of photographs of various ones of these cosmonauts who were, you know, upside down, you know, doing somersaults. I mean, there's an amazing moment where I think one of the training guys actually says that the cosmonauts are almost up to circus standards in their trampolining, which yeah. is kind of, as I say in my book, totally bizarre can you imagine if you were saying that about john glenn or alan shepherd you know he's a great trampoliner it's a nonsense so the fact is i mean it's a nonsense on the american side but this is what they were doing so they were training them up to be fantastically fit i believe yeah. somebody says that they became i think one of the cosmonauts said that after a year of this they were the 20 fittest men on the planet it yeah. might even be true yeah i was going to say it probably it, it probably was um but what they were also training in a in a regime that wasn't as sophisticated technologically as the um the american system as well wasn't it there was this yeah, whole right. evolution of the technologies that were going in different paths in every respect except possibly just one I mean, I'll come to this. The training uh, was technologically backward in the sense that, uh, well, for example, the centrifuges you just mentioned were sometimes, um, they didn't work properly sometimes. And there was one occasion where one of those 20 cosmonauts suffered terrible injuries to his back because he was being spun on the centrifuge too fast. Um, so, you know, it, there were mistakes that were made, there were injuries, and some of that was due to the kind of relatively primitive technology that they had. They didn't have the kind of simulators that was state of the art for the day that the Americans had for their training. Um, there wasn't, in any larger sense, the Americans were simultaneous with their training. They were developing very sophisticated world for the time, worldwide tracking networks, you know, setting up tracking bases, literally strung yeah. like, a, like pearls around the world so that they would be able to track their spacecraft when they finally were able to fly into orbit. Um, they had a mission control, which was at the centre of that tracking system, which employed very sophisticated, again for the day, IBM computers. And all of this stuff was being developed at the same time as the astronaut candidates themselves were training. Yeah. So we're talking about something which looks much more sophisticated. The Soviets didn't have that. They didn't have any mission control. Their tracking network was was crap, basically. I mean, it was incredibly unsophisticated. It was basically bolted on to the, st the strategic missile tracking system that the Soviets had across the continental USSR. But after you get past the USSR, you've got a few ships here and there, which are supposed to track missiles and also track potentially spacecraft but they don't work terribly well yeah. and the computers are so primitive that they employ various kinds of inks which have to print stuff which have such toxic fumes that the operators have to wear special masks <laughs> in order to operate others are going to die at their post so you've got a totally different kind of system dealing here it's really yeah. quite it's much 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 more primitive but the one area where they were ahead, and this was the key to their success. The one area where they were ahead was in their missile technology because they had much bigger rockets, much bigger missiles. Essentially, we talk about rocket and missile. It was the same yeah. thing. They had much bigger rockets than the Americans had. And this is one of the great paradoxes that you can be technologically advanced at one level, but also technologically backward in the other. The reason why 
the Americans were behind in the race. And the reason why, even when they got their first human into space three weeks after Yuri Gagarin, they were not actually able to send that man into orbit. They sent him on an up and down parabolic flight into space, back down again. It's because their rockets weren't big enough at that point. And the reason they weren't big enough is because the atomic warheads that these missiles would carry were much more sophisticated than the Soviet warheads, which meant they were smaller, which meant they had more sophisticated electronics, which meant they were lighter. And as a result of that, they didn't need such big boosters to use them, to launch them, to fire them across the world at potential targets. The Soviets had very heavy warheads. Heavy warheads required heavy rockets, heavy missiles. And so they were in a position, quite literally, to replace the nuclear five megaton warhead, essentially with a spacecraft containing a human being inside. They literally did it like that. It was There were some emendations, but basically they were using their biggest intercontinental ballistic missile, bigger than any American missile, for the reasons I've just given, stick a spacecraft in it, stick a man in that spacecraft, and away you go. So they were technologically advanced in their missile technology because they were technologically backward in their warhead technology. And that's how they were able to get ahead in space. Event Fire Solutions is an independent fire and rescue service providing both preventative and reactive emergency services across the UK. As well as our main event management, we provide the support and equipment to deliver a safe and risk-free event. From fire appliances to medical vehicles, our fully trained and accredited staff will make your event a true success. If you need risk-related advice, investigation, medical or fire training, then we can deliver this for you. From the office to the airfield, we have the experience and the accreditation and most of all the skills to make your workplace event safe and risk-free. To find out more of how we can help you, look us up at eventfiresolutions.co.uk. Did you know that the first G-suit for British pilots was essentially a chest-high pair of fishermen's waders which were filled with two gallons of water? The water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive G was applied. Did you also know that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. And in effect, those um, those missiles, those rockets, as we now know them, um, had a space at the top. And that was the space that was available for the cosmonaut or, in the American version, the astronaut. And that was tiny. So that meant they also, you mentioned earlier, they had to be quite small individuals to fit into, in effect, a space that a nuclear weapon yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, I must be kind of because you might get kind of people come back to you and say, hey, he's got that bit wrong. They, the actual rocket that was used to launch, say, Yuri Gagarin into space was a modification of the intercontinental system. Yeah. Um, it had an extra stage on it and it was actually slightly different. But essentially, we're talking about the same fundamental model. OK. And yeah. you're absolutely right. I mean, all of the cosmonauts are pretty small. I think Yuri Gagarin in old money was about five foot five, something like that. It's tiny. And they're all tiny, actually. In fact, when you see them, you know, standing next to a kind of, you know, one of their instructors or trainers, they're little people. They're actually all quite small. They need to be small. They need to be light. You're talking about people that were fit, small, light, not especially experienced pilots, serving military pilots, not test pilots in their 20s. That's Hmm. the guys that the Soviets were finding. And another reason why they wanted people in their 20s was because their ambitions were big. 
bigger than the American ambition. The American ambition was essentially to get a human being in space and to do it before the Russians, because the prestige of the West and particularly of the United States was at stake in a very dangerous world where yeah. the Iron Curtain was there and where the Cold War could turn hot at any moment. So it was really important for one ideology to prove that it was superior to the other. And what better way to prove it than in this new, exciting, dangerous, difficult arena in space? That's why I talk about gladiators on both sides. It was a war fought through gladiators in space. On the other side of the equation, it isn't the same thing. So what you've got there is this incredible, um, I don't know, you've got these, these cosmonauts, who are training there in secret, who are ready for a much wider and bigger adventure in space. So you make them younger, okay? Yeah. We're talking space stations, moon missions. We have all of this from the late 1950s. We're talking about moon bases. And the architect, we can come to in a moment, of yeah. the space program, a man called Sergei Korolev is even talking about Mars in 1958, 59. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. So we have these ambitions which are quite different. We think about Apollo. Apollo was there as a program, but it was incredibly, incredibly underfunded. And frankly, Kennedy was about to kill it because it just, just was terribly yeah. expensive and it was a waste of money as far as he was concerned. There was no, at that point, political imperative to go to the moon. Hmm. Not at that point. So you've got, but the Soviets different. They were looking at the big picture at that time. It's very imaginative. It all changed later. But most of that was driven by this incredible one man, the yeah. secret figure at the centre of the Soviet space programme. Um, we understand and hear so much about von Braun and the yeah. post-World War II, you know, capture and take all that technology. Um the the Soviets had done the same thing. They'd found themselves of on Braun, but they actually had this this character called Korolev, who was extremely secretly guarded. No yeah. one even knew he existed. Well, he was he was so guarded by KGB agents that he was um yeah, you know, everywhere he went on his travels he was guarded. His name was taken out of every kind of reference book. Um he was one of the most guarded secrets of the Soviet Union. And that is because, not just because of the space side of it, he was running essentially the space program. He's known as the chief of chief designers, okay? But also because he was the chief of the, of the development of the big Soviet missiles, principally this one that was used to send ultimately Yuri Gagarin into space, which was known as the R-7. Yeah. So he was a big missile person and became a big space person. Although you could argue he was always a big space person, and he was somebody who always wanted to use his missiles basically to get humans into space. That was his big dream. Those were his big ambitions. Um, he was totally secret. He has an interesting difference from Von Braun. Von Braun, the guy that built the V1 missiles, revolutionary, that were rained down on Antwerp and London in 1945. Von Braun was a member of the SS. Um, he had was a, Hitler adored him. Hitler thought that these missiles that he developed, that he, von Braun, had developed, was going to win the war for him. He actually made von Braun a professor on the spot after actually watching film of one of these missiles before they were used in terror, in action, for real, effectively. Um, von Braun very cleverly had hidden 14 tons of blueprints of his V1 missiles in a hideout in the Hearts Mountains to use as collateral so that if, as happened, the Nazi regime collapsed, he could then use that to persuade the Americans to let him go to the United States and to go and build missiles for them. So he started with a new boss, the President of the United States, in 1945. He was spirited over there with about a couple of hundred of his workers from Germany. They all went over there. Their Nazi records were completely wiped out. They got on and started building weapons for the army. That's what they did in a place called Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah. Eventually. On the other side, Korolev, interestingly enough, had been a victim of the Soviet Union. He had been arrested in the Great Terror of 1938, in Stalin's Great Terror, 
and arrested on the grounds of sabotage, which is complete nonsense. He was working then in a kind of a, a, a nascent kind of rocket institute for the state, obviously, was picked up, denounced by one of his fellow workers, picked up and went to the gulag in Siberia. So you've got von Braun in the SS on the one side, who employed concentration camp labor to build his V1 missiles in Nazi Germany. You've got this other guy who'd been in a Siberian labor camp as a prisoner. And that's what makes it so fascinating. These yeah. two men end up being the big rivals. And on the one side, von Braun is lauded, has his Disney television series in the 1950s, is a really big celebrity and a real big promoter of the idea of human space travel and particularly to the moon. And on the other side, you've got this secret figure who is unknown, is only known by his initials, by those in the know as the as SP or the chief designer. And these two people are pitted against one another. Von Braun always wanted to know the identity of his opposite number in the Soviet Union. And of course, didn't until after Korolev's death. But yeah. Korolev knew everything about Von Braun because he was reading about him everything in the press. Yeah, such, such, such differences. And Korolev um, formed quite a bond with Gagarin, didn't he? Let's go on to talk about, I don't want to skip over too much of the technology in that, but let's move on to that flight uh, uh, and the day um, and and how it went. Because Korolev, um, he actually loved Gagarin, didn't he? Yeah, I think that's a good, good and he, point. And he puts him into what you can describe as a, as a globe. Um, it's a sphere. A, a sphere, yeah, uh, on top of this R7. Yeah, a metal sphere on top of an R7. A metal sphere on top of an R7. The metal sphere is called Vostok, which means East. That's its name, although the code name was not actually released until the flight had happened. Uh, it was a secret name, like so many other secrets that the Soviets kept. It is an interesting relationship. Um, Korolev, when he was a little boy, this guy, Sergei Korolev, had been told stories by his mother about flying on a magic carpet around the world. This is what fired his imagination. He never lost that. There was a kind of poetry to this man's soul. And behind all the technology was this incredible idea of exploring space, of leaving the planet. There was something terribly exciting about that, as indeed there was for von Braun as well, one has to say. And... For Korolev, it was always going to be somehow him that undertook that journey. And his tragedy, of course, was that would never happen. He was too old and so on. So Gagarin, out of those 20 men, became the sort of the son he, he basically never had. He was the son who was going to, to do what he could not do in his lifetime. And there is this incredible paternal relationship. I mean, it is very interesting when you look at photographs, secret at the time photographs of the two of them together. And what you said, I mentioned that I have a picture in the book, actually, and you see the expression on Korolev's eyes when he's looking yeah. at Gagarin. And it is the expression of a loving father. I think it really is. I think it's genuine, that relationship. It really yeah. was powerful. It isn't the only reason why Yuri Gagarin is chosen, by no means. But it was a very key part of the reason why Gagarin was chosen. So they do have this very special relationship, which, of course, means that when Gagarin is about to undertake a flight in which the odds were less than 50-50, I mean, consider that for a moment, yeah. less than 50-50 that he would survive it. There were so many gruesome ways in which he might happen to die in the course of that unbelievable flight that he did. Then. For Korolev, it was like potentially killing his own son. And there is a biblical element, I think, to this in a way. It has that kind of ring of, you know, the Abraham story. Um, and, you know, you are maybe sacrificing your own son for the greater good. And there is that yeah. sense in which Korolev, throughout that flight, is almost in pieces. I mean, he has almost a visible, visceral breakdown when things at different points of the flight start to go very wrong, that he might have killed his son, essentially. Yeah. So it's very he, part of the story, I think. He and did. 
it 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 all it starts on the launch pad just before launch um when just as about to uh, to launch the an alarm goes off doesn't it yeah. and the a door alarm yeah. i think it was from memory yeah, exactly. and they have to replace the door in record time yes they have to. to to get this to get this going i mean the energy in the book really comes over you feel the stress yeah. and anxiety yeah that's, um, that's interesting yeah you, i mean i met some of the people who were kind of involved in all of that that's the thing and i had uh, okay them. So yeah. I was able to really pick that. I mean, I, I got very excited writing it, actually, Peter. It was, it, I mean, I, <laughs> I, you know, and I would say to your listeners that one of the things that I've tried to do and beyond is, this is not kind of dull history. What I'm trying to do is put, I mean, it's all, it's all documented history. Yeah. And I did a lot of research for it, but it, 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 it is all about putting you in the driving seat. Yeah. It's about what's it like to be in that sphere and be the first human in history to go into space and what i mean by that is the first biological organism in 3.5 billion years of history on this earth to leave our biosphere and look down on it what does that feel like and more so the paradox being what does that feel like to do that on a nuclear missile okay yeah yeah which could blow up in any number of ways. And the irony of ironies is that it takes a machine that is designed to destroy the planet to see the planet in all of its beauty from above. And that's a beautiful and very kind of telling irony. It was always in my mind when I wrote. So you're absolutely right. There is this incredible moment where... There is a very tight launch window. The tight launch window is there because they have to launch in such a time that the that the the, the capsule will. It was one orbit that the capsule will come back to Mother Russia and not end up somewhere else, like in the sea or in a capitalist country, God forbid, like the United States. Yeah, so the paranoia was, was great, wasn't it? Paranoia was great. Anyway, this is this is this is top secret technology. Don't forget. Okay, so they do, and of course the launch was in secret. It wasn't televised or anything like that, yeah. like the American launch was. It was none of that. Forty million Americans watched Alan Shepard launch um, three weeks later. I mean, lots and lots and lots of Americans by the time had television. So forty million, but this no one watched it in real time. I mean, nobody knew about yeah. it except those who were allowed to know about it. Obviously, so I'm not even Gagarin's wife, for God's sake, knew that her husband was going to be the guy that was going to go up or that this was the day it was going to happen. Even yeah. she didn't know in Moscow. So his parents certainly didn't know anything at all. So you've got a situation where they've got to get in this window and they've got this door, this hatch basically, which has, I think, 32 bolts on it from memory. And there is a problem because one of the bolts doesn't look like it's secured and a, a light comes on, an alarm light comes on and a decision has to be made really quickly. Do we launch anyway and hope to God this thing is actually working? Because if it doesn't, everything inside the capsule is going to be depressurized. Now, Gagarin yeah. was wearing a pressure suit, a space suit, so he would nest, he would survive that. But, you know, it, it immediately ramps up the possibility that he's going to die because yeah. if there's anyone with a space suit, which had never been tested in space in that sense before on a human being, then he's really screwed. He will die because there's nothing, he's, there's no pressure in, there's no atmosphere in the capsule itself. So a decision has to be made. And Korolev is green at this point and makes a decision. They've got to take the whole hatch, all 32 bolts, and put them back on again in record time, as you rightly say, in order to meet this launch window. And the incredible thing is they take the hatch off and Gagarin is cool as a cucumber. He actually starts singing. He sings some folk song. And at one point, he even asks whether they have any music that they can pipe up to him in the capsule through his headphones. And you're talking about a kind of a rocket launch site, a rocket bunker, a missile bunker. You know, what music have they got? Something <laughs> like some, some record or some tape recording or something, and they manage yeah. to put it on, and they pipe it up to him. And he's genuinely cool as a cucumber. I mean, his heartbeat is really quite low because they're measuring that too. It's yeah. quite extraordinary, really. So he had the high school. He had the right stuff. Definitely, he was the right man. Definitely, but he, but he wasn't, as we know. You know, the, the, 
the R7 launched successfully, um, I just want to talk about the safety measures and the risks associated um, with that. Just before we talk about the flight, actually, let's go back. Um, we see a lot of escape capsules. We see an awful lot of um, the additional um, pieces on the American hardware that would save the astronauts. How would Gugarin have been saved if something had happened on the pad and then something that had happened in flight? Well, I ought to preface this by saying it was only really towards, I can't remember it was, around 1960 maybe, that they decided they were going to have spacesuits at all. Okay, so, you know, we're talking about they had to cut corners everywhere. This is Wallace and Gromit in space. <laughs> in order to beat the Americans. Okay, that's what they did. So they were going to take huge risks. So the rescue system on the launch pad was frankly a joke. I mean, it was just ridiculous. What was going to happen is if anything went wrong, if this thing blew up or anything went wrong on the pad, what would happen is, is that Gagarin, and Gagarin could not do this himself. He had no autonomy at all. Somebody on the ground would have to actually get permission in a very Soviet way to press a button that would then eject the hatch that we've just spoken about, 10 stories up on the top of this enormous, for its time, absolutely you know, the biggest rocket in the world at the time, this enormous rocket, Gagarin would be flung backwards, no parachute, flung backwards out of this, out of this hatch and fall <laughs> 10 stories onto a wire mesh, basically a net that was at the bottom. He would That would break his fall if it didn't actually kill him. And then he was supposed, and also if he hasn't consumed, yeah, been burned to death, yeah, exactly. And then he incinerated. Then he would have to somehow crawl across this net to, and I kid you not, to where an ordinary domestic bathtub <laughs> was just suspended from the net. He was then supposed to climb into this bathtub. And it really was a domestic bath. They actually had to find the bathtub. There was a committee set up to do just that, and they found that the guy who lived in the, 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 the railway station manager at the Cosmodrome, his <laughs> wife had a bath, so they actually used that, and they put the bath underneath the net. Gagarin was supposed to crawl into the bath, and this is not just Gagarin, this was a subsequent, this was the same system for the first few Vostok flights, and then the bathtub would be lowered to the ground, at which point, apparently, there were kind of rescue personnel, medical personnel that would then descend on him, pick him up and get him away. And all that was supposed to happen was 90, basically 90, 260 tonnes of rocket fuel was exploding in every single possible direction. Yeah, yeah. And the incredible thing about it is it was so mad that they didn't even tell the cosmonaut it existed. I mean, that's the incredible thing. So the cosmonaut himself in that sphere had no idea that such a rescue system actually existed. Wow. At all. Wow. And the rescue system on launch was was no better. He had no control. Well, no he control. had no control full stop. But well, we have, we have, yeah, sorry. No control over any um any emergency no. ingress from no. that. Which, no. which was in effect to blast him out of the rocket as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was, but there was no, I mean, nothing. It would be, and uh, to be honest, what would have happened is he would just die. This would be quite clear about that. Yeah. Um, he would just die. And in fact, as it happened in the launch, I mean, you say it was a good launch. Actually, it wasn't a good launch. What actually happened is that one of the stages didn't go quite right. And it was, it almost caused Korolev on the ground in the rocket bunker, the missile bunker, to have a, a breakdown right there. I mean, I have spoken to people who were witnesses to that, and they saw him kind of fall apart. He was popping aspirin pills the whole way yeah. through this. And the uh, it, what happened? Essentially, what happened was that the rocket um, fired for longer than it should have done the engine, and as a result, Yuri Gagarin ended up in an orbit that was too high, right. which had colossal consequences because what it meant was he was going to land hundreds of kilometers off course, where there was nobody to rescue him. Yeah. So already it was going wrong. Already it was going wrong in the first 11 minutes. But um, he made it to space. He had no, um, or he made it out of the atmosphere. Mm. He had no control though, did he? You look at the Mercury 7 capsule and it's just like, well, it's it's recognisable as something very complicated. Only an astronaut could 
could control. But he literally had a handful of controls and had no control over bringing that capsule down. If you, um, for, for, for those who buy my book, Beyond, what they would find in the pictures is two colour pictures which compare the two panels, essentially the cockpits. And, you know, that might be kind of a bit, look a bit nerdy, but it's not. It's actually an ideological story because on the American side, you rightly say, it's a maze of dials, switches, buttons, levers. Gonna say, it looks like a very, for its time, I'm talking about 1961, and indeed it was state-of-the-art cockpit. It really was sophisticated. And, of course, there was a significant amount of manual control within the limitations of the spacecraft itself. There were little thrusters that could be fired, which could actually move the spacecraft in different axes. And, and you know, they wanted to see, they were just beginning to kind of experiment with what could or could not be done by an astronaut in space. On the Soviet capsule, it's a joke. It, and you see it in the next picture. It looks like the interior of a 1950s Soviet car. I think there are about four <laughs> Okay, I mean, it's really nice. It's a few switches. There's a little radio that looks like a 1950s radio car radio, and isn't really much better than that. And indeed, uh, didn't really work very well. There's a Morse code, you know, a Morse key to send Morse code because that's all they had, um, and that didn't actually work either. There's a navigation instrument which is like a clockwork globe. It looks like a little schoolroom globe. And really isn't much more sophisticated than that, which is supposed to show where the spacecraft is on the surface of the globe. And it was so wrong that at one point in the flight, Yuri Gagarin confidently announced to no one in particular, because no one was actually hearing him, essentially, he said that I'm over America when he was nowhere near America, he was over the Pacific. So it was that inaccurate. You know, it is a very, and what we're looking at is somebody who is not expected to touch anything. So it is an ideological conflict or difference is a better word between the autonomous, independent pilot in command. This is my vessel, right? I run it, essentially. I'm with some significant, an enormous amount of automation also, I should add, in the Mercury as well. And on the other side, it's all automated. You can change the temperature of the, you know, it's basically like sitting in a modern jet as a, you know, in business class and changing the the heat controls and the air conditioning controls and stuff like that and the volume of the radio. There was basically that. However, there was an emergency backup manual control, very primitive, much more primitive than that on on the Mercury capsule in the Vostok, like a little gaming stick on the right hand side. And even that was locked. And the only way it could be unlocked was by punching in a three-digit code on a numeric pad that looks a bit like a hotel safe pad on the left-hand side of the cockpit. The great craziness in all of this is that the code wasn't given directly to the cosmonaut. There were huge debates about what to do. What they did was they put it in an envelope and they then put the envelope in a secure and sealed place inside the lining of the cabin. The idea being, <laughs> if, the, if the, they were very worried, uh, what might happen yeah. is that the guy might go crazy and, and press in the three digits. And somehow it was considered that if he was able to access this envelope from somewhere in the cabin, open it, take it out, read the numbers, press the numbers and unlock it, then he must be sane. <laughs> I mean, he's not going to go crazy in space. And yeah. but it's that crazy. And in fact, yeah. they gave for a year. The American astronauts have been training on their, I believe, two simulators. Um, two, they call them. I think they call them procedures trainers. So there were two for its time, quite sophisticated simulators. I think one in one in. I can't remember exactly where. I think one in Langley and the other one, but I might be wrong about this. And the other one down at the Cape. And they were training on these things for a year. They were training, and you know what happens if everything goes wrong? They're going to take full manual control. And they've got to get the reorient the position of the you know so ready for for, for reentry because it has to be absolutely critical the angle of yeah. the capsule. In the Soviet case, they had a few hours to do all of that, and they were doing it. They were training within the last week before launch how to reorientate a spacecraft 
in such a way that they're not going to burn up in the atmosphere or skip back into space. That's wow. the difference. Wow. It's wow. phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And it says everything about a system in the Soviet Union where you do what you're told, there isn't independence, there isn't autonomy, you're not even told what's going on, there are secrets. And in the West, it's much more about having that individuality, having that control, having that independence, having that autonomy, and there are much fewer secrets. You are told mostly what is going to happen. And I would argue that is exactly where we are in 2022. Yeah, I, I take that. And I don't want to now cover too much of the flight, actually, Stephen, because I want people to buy the book because you have to you have to read it. As you, as you mentioned, you wrote it in a style that allows the reader to go on that journey. So I'm going to skip us a, a little bit uh, toward towards the end of the flight. Um, and something that absolutely fascinated me and either I'm naive or never knew this, but actually as they re-entered the atmosphere or as Gagarin re-entered the atmosphere and eventually landed he didn't land in the capsule did he no and the reason why that happened was um the technology let's just be clear because a lot of people think that you know they think when they see all this stuff they think it capsules land in the sea you know I mean that's what we're used to from American spacecraft and the Soviet side it's still the same case today with Russian Soyuz launches is that the cosmonaut, the occupant, if you like, lands on terra firma, on mother Russian soil, you know? And that was the case in 1961 as well. And the reason for that is because that's where you protect your secrets. You don't land them somewhere in the ocean, with, which is much dodgier. Capsule could sink, you know, capitalist ships could get there first. You'd get them back into Russia. However, the technology in 1961 did not exist, which allowed even a small man like Yuri Gagarin to land in the sphere with a parachute attached to it at the same time. It was too heavy to do that. It could kill him to do that. So what they did instead was they devised a system in which, at I think an altitude of about 23,000 feet, the cosmonaut inside, in this case, Yuri Gagarin, would be ejected through that hatch, like an aeroplane ejection, like a fighter jet ejection, would be ejected and he'd parachute down separately. So you'd have a parachute attached to the sphere with no one in it, and you'd have a parachute with the cosmonaut dangling on the end of it. And they'd hopefully land relatively close to each other. However, they, they being the people that are responsible for all of this, could not tell the world that. And the reason why they couldn't tell the world that was the Soviets were determined to claim the internationally recognised world altitude record. Here's a first. <laughs> we yeah. went higher than anyone yeah. else. Which yeah. They would have done. They went up to 260 kilometers above the Earth's surface or thereabouts. So they would have done. But the rule of the international body is that you have to land in the same craft in which you took off, which would clearly not be the case if at 23,000 feet, the pilot cosmonaut, as it were, ejected. So what did they do? They just lied. They lied and said <laughs> they did land. And this myth went on for a long, long time. Indeed, mm. I went to museums in, I mean, there's one classic one in Saratov, which is a town on the Volga, very close to where Yuri Gagarin landed, and where he also, years earlier as a student, studied iron foundry work. And there was a museum dedicated to him. And on one massive wall on the museum, I've got a wonderful picture of it, which I actually tweeted at one point, You've got a picture. Everything about that picture is wrong. The capsule's landed, and he steps forth in his orange space book, smiling from the capsule that has just landed, which <laughs> never happened. No, it was an no. interesting and very funny and very Soviet corollary to the story, which is that, of course, there were people who saw the capsule in the area. Yeah. And they saw that the capsule landed without anybody in it, and they also had seen that Gagarin had landed separately. So they knew what the truth was. So they had to be sort of shut up. And, and, and there was a moment when the Pravda, which is actually the key, you know, Soviet and now too, today, yeah. mouthpiece of the state, it means truth, of course, and of course there's anything but the truth, had two versions of the story at the same time. One being, he has landed in the council. The other being, I think on the same day, he hasn't, another edition, he hasn't landed in the council. So this is where the kind of, the, the myth, how the Soviet gets, you know, had got to, eventually they sorted out the, the right story they were going to tell. And on we went with the, yeah. with the myth. Yeah. And 
Stephen, there is so much more in the book. And one of the things that um, that there is, is there is as much at the beginning of that process as there is at the end. And you tell the story about Gagarin post the launch as well. So you, you have to buy the book to read that because unfortunately we're running a little bit out of time. Um, one or two questions just to sign off then, Stephen. Fascinating to have unearthed all of these uh, gems from history. Um, how did you go about researching and, and gathering all of that information? <laughs> well, the just to keep it brief for you, I mean, the story started as, a, I'm a filmmaker, as you yeah. mentioned in your introduction, as well as a writer. And I had originally pitched this as a film, as a documentary uh, feature uh. film. Um, the story was originally pitched as such because I had come across a diary of a Soviet cinematographer, which was a secret diary at the time, subsequently published in just one edition, translated, in which he describes how he was asked to volunteer to document on film all of this. Right. And he and the team went out and they started filming all of this preparation, all the training, all the everything in colour, 35 millimetre. And I pitched this idea to a premier feature film company in the UK. I won't give the name, but people will know the company. And I went to them and said, look, why don't we try and find this stuff? Because what we can do then is up-res it, put it on the big screen, and we can go, yeah. we can dive into that period, all this secretly shot footage. And they got excited. They commissioned me. I went out to Russia, I think, three times. I interviewed some amazing people at the time. I managed to find some of this material, but a lot of it was difficult to find. A lot of it was in poor repair. I think some of it, frankly, was hidden. And it got more and more difficult, yeah. actually, to access the material. So I had all this stuff. What do I do with it? I know I'll, I'll write it as a book. So I went back to Russia. I sent my, my, my Russian researcher. I went once. I also went to Kazakhstan, to where the launch site is in what is now called Baikonur. I went to various different parts of Russia. I sent my Russian researcher back. I went to the United States. I mean, it was crazy. I did a lot of archival and people research in a very short space of time. And then on the first, pretty much the first day of lockdown, when Boris Johnson was sending us all off at, when I think it's late March 2000, and when is it, 20? 20, I yeah. started to write. And wow. I wrote it at speed. And yeah. I think some of the energy of that ends up in the book. It, it, it does. written within a few months. It does. So it's an absolutely fascinating read, Stephen. It, anybody who hasn't bought this book, and they know I often get excited by some of the books that I read, but this one is is genuinely really, really special. Um, Stephen, just before you go, where can we find you uh, online? Where can we follow you? Yes, of course. Um, I am on my website is on www.stephenwalkerbeyond.com. So it's quite easy because the book's called Beyond and I'm Stephen Walker. So stephenwalkerbeyond.com. And uh, and yeah, and I don't know if people, it's, I think also it might be quite a fun, I'm going to say this, of course, might be a fun Christmas book for people too. So it might be that people know people that might be interested. I mean, it's I, I'd like to think it's a good read. Uh, obviously, I'm bound to say that. But um, <laughs> it, you know, I mean, of course, I'm going to say that. But it's been a, a, a delight to talk about it with you. Uh, really, really appreciate it. It's a fascinating read. It's an unputdownable uh, book for for want of a better um, explanation but thank you so much Stephen for joining us and thank you very much I, I, I had a great time thank you so much thank you so if you'd like to support the program we welcome listener donations reviews on Apple Podcasts and of course five-star reviews on Spotify remember to follow Eventfire Solutions on Twitter and the Aviation Historian you can find me, Nascot Hornet, on Twitter, and you can find the rest of the extended team on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And that's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Stephen. Goodbye. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear 
programmes produced with a Creative Commons licence. Please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast. It genuinely helps grow our programme and broaden its reach. You can also review the programme and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. This is XTP Media.